Every time you play a match, you just feel tired because you're fighting. You're trying to get to the top. There's no easy, crushing, enjoyable moment of victory where you feel super powerful. Hi friends! Welcome to the Metacast Roundtable by Navic. And today is going to be a really chill episode, I feel. So grab a little hot drink, put your cozy shoes on. Uh, because we're joined by Anil Dasgupta, CPO and co-founder of First Light Games, and also the Crypto Cabal meetup in London, which is happening later on. And Matt Dayan, senior, no, oh wait, recently promoted at lead. <laughs> Product manager at EA and also Navic contributor. Well, it's happy to be here. Do you have your cozy shoes on? Yes, very cozy, ready to go. Good. How about you, Anil? I'm too fashionable for cozy shoes. Wow. Mine, <laughs> mine hurt my feet, but they look good on me. That's how I roll. I'm gonna look at your feet. Later. <laughs> Wait, that sounds weird. Okay, scratch that. Scratch that. <laughs> Uh, actually, today is the 50th episode of the Roundtable. Wow. 50 of these. I joined about, I don't know, 12 ago or something. So a big chunk of that was Nico. So congrats to Nico um, on this 50 episodes, not years. Um, <laughs> and okay, before we kick off, I saw the leaked list of the PlayStation State of Play. Uh, what are you looking forward to? I'm looking forward to the game Stray. I'm very excited about this game. You control a stray cat roaming around <laughs> a like post-apocalyptic robot cyberpunk city of some sort. And uh, you know, I love cats. I have a cat, so I'm uh, I'm excited about this game. That's all the analysis I have. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> Makes sense. Are your dogs <laughs> going to be jealous? No, I don't think so. They get plenty of attention. Oh, yeah, that's so cute. Uh, Anil, do you have anything you're looking for? Oh, it's to? super obvious. Yeah, it's super obvious for me, but it's Street Fighter VI. Uh, it's course. already ah! been announced, but the last time they did it, they didn't really show any gameplay. They just showed some kind of conceptual stuff. I've got a feeling it will, knowing Capcom, still only be conceptual stuff. They normally don't show the gameplay till fighting game season, which is in August, but one can dream. One can hope. Um, it's all about that gameplay. I'd love to see it. Uh, it's, a, it's a game I worked on in the past, uh, Street Fighter 4, which is a quite a long time ago when you consider this now a five and all that sort of shadazzle in the middle. But always a fan. I'm curious what they are doing with it. I understand that this time around as well, the game director is a lady. And I think that's the first time for a Street Fighter franchise. So yeah, um, I've heard behind closed doors that they're quite excited for it. But let's see. Let's see. Cool. Yeah. Do you think it's going to be an open world fighting game? Who knows? I mean, do you know what I have to say? When they do the games like that, I always hope that someone puts their stamp on it. Even if it's like, maybe doesn't even work out. I think with franchises, personally, I hate it when people play it safe. I'd rather that each one was this kind of identifiable different thing, you know, for good or for worse. So if it is, I mean, you know, why not? I mean, yeah, I think it's better to be Marmite with games like that. It's kind of interesting in the industry, isn't it? It's, you know, that's not normally the way they do. Normally, it's better to be safe rather than sorry. But, um, you know, when there's been so many games, and you know, I think it's celebrating its 35th anniversary this year. 
I personally would rather something that like really makes me excited for it. Hmm. So open world Street Fighter 6 confirmed. That's what we're saying here. <laughs> With cats. With cats. With cats, yes. yes. I didn't see Final Fantasy on the list. I actually think I saw two different lists. I, I think there are oh. fake images circulating the internet and one of them had Final Fantasy, but then the recent one didn't. Mm. Uh, that is my grand desire, mm. please. Mm. Final Fantasy 16. Where are I you I thought in my I life? had heard... I thought I had heard some rumors about like Final Fantasy VII Remake Part Two was going to be announced uh, soon. Yeah, That's that was also yeah. that was also in the one of the images I saw. That now is no longer okay. the image that mm. I found. <laughs> that would make more Want sense. That would be pretty exciting to see that because it's been a long time yeah. coming, isn't it? I'm going to be devastated if Stray is not actually on the slate, though. <laughs> what, <laughs> what am I going to look forward to then? Well, Final Fantasy. <laughs> Yeah, no, I am actually legitimately super stoked about Final Fantasy Remake Part 2. Um, the original was my favorite game ever, and I loved the remake, so I'm definitely excited about Part 2 whenever that does come. Yeah, I'm still on the Final Fantasy X team as the best Final Fantasy. I understand. Good. No one tried to convince <laughs> me otherwise. This is great. Okay, moving on. You're entitled um, to your opinion. You know. Wow. <laughs> this is such a nice group of friends. Gosh. This is the chill podcast. Yeah, it is the chill podcast. <laughs> I just don't have the hot drink to sip on. Um, yeah, so next big announcement that I got really, really excited about. Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order, the sequel, was announced with the cool name of Star Wars Jedi Survivor. Hmm. I have nothing else to share on that apart from that really cool tidbit of news. <laughs> did you play the first one? I did. I did. Yeah. Did you? What'd you think? Yeah, I, I liked it. Uh, uh, it was kind of like um, Star Wars meets Dark Souls almost. Not as difficult, I think, but um, similar kind of design. I thought it was really good. Yeah, the combat was really good. It kind of had a platform, platform feeling, which was nice. It was a controlled open environment, which I appreciate. I get to bog down in open worlds. So I like having a bit of an exploration path, but not too much within the different worlds. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one. I agree it was um, Dark Souls light. And if you played at a higher difficulty, it definitely got very Dark Soulsy. I ended up turning the difficulty down because mm -hmm. I'm a wimp. Uh, yeah, it was good. It was good. Um, oh, and just the last news. Yeah, Hutch started the four-day work week, so I'll now be trialing this life of a four-day work week. I'll I'll let you know in a month or so what this feels like. Oh wow! Ma yeah, maybe I'll build built a boat or something. <laughs> That's very cool for them to do that, though. It'd be interesting to see the results. Yeah, it'll be good. I, there's been data being shared of other companies and games doing this, but you never quite know how. I don't, you know, I don't want to throw the results into question. How how true is it while you put through the, to the media, I suppose. Mm -hmm. So going through it myself, um, yeah, I'm keen to see if I can do as much in four days. Well, we'll see. And with that, we'll kick off the first topic today, which is from Matt. Yeah, so this will be a quick one, I think, but um, wanted to talk about some transmedia announcements from Sony. So they, they have come out and said that there's going to be uh, some adaptations of some of their first party IPs, 
uh, God of War is going to be a TV show, apparently, on uh, Amazon Prime. Horizon Zero Dawn is going to get a Netflix show. And the sort of head-scratcher to me was Gran Turismo is going to get a movie. Um, and supposedly Neil Blomkamp from uh, District 9 fame is, is, is penned for or, uh, directing that. We'll see. I don't think that's been confirmed. Um, so, you know, before we dive into, like, what we think about those adaptations, uh, I just wanted to, like, kind of give a bit of background also because this seems to be like a, a strategy that Sony is pursuing, right? So so they have also previously um, announced uh, adaptations for Last of Us, for Ghost of Tsushima, for Twisted Metal, and Jack and Daxter. I think the three of us maybe previously discussed uh, uh, around the Bungie acquisition, uh, if that might be a strategy that they took Destiny in. I know Maria's really stoked about that. Um, so, so it seems like this is a strategy that Sony's pursuing. Uh, I wanted to just kind of throw it out to you all, like, do we think this is going to work? Um, what is the goal? Like, are they trying to drive people back to the PlayStation Network with these uh, TV shows and movies? Or is there are they franchise building? Is it all the above? Is it something else? Like, what do you all think? Anil? Uh, yeah, I think I would say all of the above to be a complete cop-out with the answer. Um, <laughs> okay. I, it's something we have discussed uh, quite a few times. And we were kind of saying that how games now because they've kind of got to being an adult in sort of their form right games have been around for so long now sort of 30 to 40 years that we're getting to the point where ip sort of truly becomes forever franchises and i think if you were to look at ip management in general this sort of thing is the sort of thing you'd expect to do and if you've got like a hit ip you know why would you not do this kind of thing um it, it, you know that's exactly what you would do you would try to make it so that you know it's not just a game but there's other media that, trend, that spins off it. Um, I think, you know, maybe a more interesting question that you asked, Matt, was, um, you know, will it work? <laughs> and yeah. that um, I'm less confident of in my answer, I would say, um, if I'm being honest, because let's, let's say gaming and transitioning away from gaming has largely been a failure. I mean, perhaps if you look at things like Pokemon being a card game, that's different. So it, we have definitely seen games kind of been successful, not just in their native form. But I can't really think of a really successful gaming IP that sort of managed to be a successful movie. It may be something the Hedgehog has done quite well, but still more of a nostalgia. I think it's how you define it, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Hollywood accounting is notoriously kind of strange. But um, I think if we're just talking numbers, like financial success, even some of the really poorly reviewed movies have been financial successes like mm. uh, I, i'm remembering back to the world of warcraft movie which was like a huge hit in china um uh one movie that i neglected to mention earlier was the uncharted one uh in january which which uh, appears to have turned a profit based on what i found oh, no. on, on box office <laughs> mojo um uh i don't know like i think i think we're all kind of old enough to remember when like the Super Mario movie was a big deal. John Leguizamo was like, whoa, this is crazy. Video games are coming to movies. And now it's like, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you all is, are we in a golden age for film and TV adaptations of video games? Because I think we, we might be. I think we are. Looking at the market of how many people in the world are gamers and love, yeah. everyone has a favorite video game or mobile game. Um, like mine is Final Fantasy X and I'm constantly talking about it. And I'm, I'm more hopeful about film and series adaptations of games rather than books. 
Because books have a story line by line and character development that is done for you by the author. And in games, there's that mixture between uh, the narrative and then you have your own, especially in RPGs, um, you're making your own story as you go. So perhaps people won't be so bogged down on line by line of the story and will be more open to different storylines. And on... (sighs) Like, at least with my consumption habits, I will watch anything that has an IP on it that I like, even if it has disappointed me in the past because I like the IP. And with games, you, I play a lot of games. You've got persistence to do that. I admire your spirit for that. I, I would say I think it's the golden age for trying it. I would definitely agree with that. For me, a golden age <laughs> would be that the, the results are good. But listen, I would say this. I'm not against it because I feel that it's like a numbers game. At some point, someone will make a great gaming movie stroke tv series maybe you could argue the witcher is that although that was a book before it was a video game then it will Mm. take off and you know let's remember that comic book movies even though now they're everywhere and i personally detest them even though i'm being a massive comics book fan as a kid it took years and years and years for someone really to, to crack it like the batmans were always pretty successful superman mediocre but it wasn't really till kind of spider man one with um that Sony released that everyone's like, oh my God, you can make a superhero movie. And Hollywood for years had shied away from it. And then they were everywhere and Marvel repeated their formula over and over. And regardless of what you think about them, there have definitively been some, you know, comic book movie adaptations that have been absolutely amazing. You know, I'm a big fan of Guardians of the Galaxy, for example. So I think it'll be the same thing. I don't know when it will happen. I kind of pray that someone does. I think for me, maybe it's the same for you guys, but it's just sad that given the richness of the IP that is available with some of the video game adaptations, that the movies have been so poor. Um, you know, my time in Capcom, Resident Evil, that's actually considered a success, the movies, but the movies just have got nothing to do with the games. It's just sort of so mm. disappointing when the lore of the games is like, for me, one of my best sort of my favorite things about it. Like they've got great characters. So I just hope someone someday does it justice, but I think it will happen because at some point you're going to get a a script writer who grew up with video games, actually knows the source material like the back of their hand and is talented. And the person financing it also understands video games and also knows said game and they'll make it happen. And hopefully it'll be glorious and successful. And then that will be the golden age. Uh, but I commend I commend Sony for doing it. The, the Gran Turismo one's weird as hell, though. That's just like it. I, <laughs> I was going to ask mean, if you thought that was going to be the, the paragon of video game movies, <laughs> Gran Turismo film. <laughs> Could you imagine if that one was, though? Because maybe it's such a blank canvas. But it's, it's just because, obviously, what does it even mean? There's no characters. There's no world to <laughs> yeah. it. But, um, I mean, they've got a great director on it. Know. Who can say? Yeah, they made a so, movie uh, out of Battleship, too. So, you know, it oh, seems God. like they can make a movie yeah. out of anything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it worked for The Witcher. A number of players went back to the game after watching it on on Netflix. Yeah, and do you know That's what exactly game? That's exactly what happened to me. Oh, okay. Do you know what game yeah. has great great lore and would be a great series? Uh, Destiny. Is it? Is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Final Fantasy X. Nah. Maria, so even though that's been <laughs> the theme. I'm not that predictable. <laughs> okay, so so you're kind of setting it up, Maria. It's uh, it's a great segue. Like which. Since we're talking about Sony and transmedia, which Sony IP do you think makes the jump next? Oh gosh! The 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 choice is limited because they've already announced so many. I'll give you one to think about. I think you'll appreciate this, Anil. What if they made a Tekken movie? 
Well, but is that Sony or is that Namco? That they, they are making a Tekken oh, yeah. live series, I think. I, I'm pretty are sure there's, there's a te- yeah, there's a Tekken animated series oh. already. I'm pretty sure I've even seen an episode of it. It looked quite good. That that would be good. That would be all for it. I mean, the Mortal Kombat movies are questionable, shall we say? But yep. I I personally really like the first one they ever made of that. I actually think that was quite. Oh a good yeah, that's the, that's the classic. Yeah, have they announced Crash Bandicoot yet? That would seem more the sort of thing mm-hmm. that. Um, I think would work well because sometimes I think that like going for the more realistic style is harder because you're trying to a- appeal to two audiences the ones who exi- already like the, fan- the the franchise and sort of new people who might not but might think it's a bit nerdy whereas I mean they're doing Jack and Daxter as well I think that's another good one I kind of feel that those ones are a bit easier to succeed in because you can have like cool looking characters that are over the top and it's maybe cheaper to do animation than it is to do live action movies and you might get more of a, a hit there. So if they've not done that, that's the one that I think they might do because it's still a strong IP and I think would work well in that world. How about you guys? What do you think? Matt? <laughs> oh, I gave, I gave my prediction uh, oh, Tekken, okay. but I, like, yeah. I think Anil makes a good point. It's not really a Sony IP. Um, I don't know. Um, I think, yeah, Crash Bandicoot is an excellent call. I'm excited for the Twisted Metal TV show oh. um, just because I loved that game. I don't know. Maybe my excitement is misplaced, but uh, I think Michael B. Jordan is going to be in that one, uh, if um, I'm not mistaken. Um, I don't know. I, I'm going to have to do some quick Googling here. <laughs> <laughs> I already said mine, which is uh, Destiny. Uh, if I had another choice, I would dive into a Warframe series oh. or a trilogy of movies or something it just has such good lore and it's pure sci-fi and i love a good sci-fi with high fast action combat and different characters that have different powers and synergies that would be good i I was mistaken about twisted metal it's anthony mackie not michael b jordan so i got my superheroes mixed up but um yeah he's gonna be uh he's the he was falcon in falcon winter soldier um, are you good, Matt? Do you have any other questions? Can we? I have so many questions about the Gran Turismo <laughs> movie, but I think we can. Move on. <laughs> I think we can move on. We'll have to wait, wait and see. We can then do a, a roundtable on the movie once it's out. Oh, I'm up for that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, Neil. So on, on to your topic. Yeah. So my topic is on Merge Mania, and I'm not talking about. Uh, the merging games on the mobile top charts, which I think could also be a relevant discussion, but the general consolidation that's happening in the industry. And I was sparked by um, another acquisition happening this week, which was a uh, trail mix. Um, well, actually Supercell now got a majority stake in trail mix. They're people that I know quite well. Uh, Caro, if she's listening, congratulations to her. I remember her speaking to her actually when she founded that company. And um, it was, I, I really was thankful for her time because uh, that was around the same time that I decided to do something. So, yeah, so does it end? And I think that the sort of the, the bigger questions are sort of like, is it good for the industry? Is it good for players themselves? Um, how do we think it's going to be affected going forwards? How about the Web3 sort of elephant in the room in the sense that like many companies are starting to pivot or thinking about pivoting? Um, who's going to be the next big company to be acquired? Many things we can touch on. So I'll throw all those kind of darts your way, Maria, and see what you have to say. Wait, what? Those were a lot of darts at the same time. <laughs> so let, let's start the top one. And let's say, you know, 
what's your overall take on consolidation in the industry? Is it good for the industry and is it good for players? I'm going to do a cop-out answer here as well. Okay. Um, I believe business and financial markets, it goes in circles. Everything is in a circle, so there will be consolidation. And then, well, sorry, in English, what's the antonym for consolidation? Expansion, was it? Is it? Okay. Um, and so, yeah, I think it will go It will go in circles. We're in, in consolidation, and then that will be the next step. The consolidation makes sense um, for these big companies, especially that they've been around for years, uh, and now they're starting to plateau with the growth and strike struggling to find the next growth opportunities the acquisition is a good way to reward um your shareholders and then move on to the next thing to be honest how about the the fact though yeah well i'm more thinking sorry sorry sorry, sorry. go 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 go. i'm more thinking from a player perspective what's running Mm -hmm. through my mind now i'm trying to think as a player what do i feel about the consolidation and it makes me nervous because we see all of these games that are a little bit risky, like the stray cat wandering through a city. If I were in a big, big company, probably have more greenlining processes and they want to be less, uh, they're going to be more risk averse to try to guarantee better returns. Will they allow for more um, creative, risky games that have these concepts that aren't so based on other games that are out there like non-formulas is what i'm trying to say so we could be we could see a reduction of just interesting high high realism games that are out there that have high production values uh, hopefully you know hopefully and there there's an indie market so we'll keep seeing those kind of new games and fresh ideas in the indie market but i, I always like to sit in front of my playstation and just have this high definition world to get lost in with very high quality and high production values and i'm a little bit afraid that that might decrease what do you make of the fact though that at the moment i think the big change is that the companies who previously used to do the acquiring like your ubisoft your eas and before they were acquired activision blizzard are now the ones being acquired like that's a huge paradigm shift like ea acquiring a company that's literally happened for like the last 20 years EA being acquired hasn't happened yet. That's a game changer. Same with Activision Blizzard. And, you know, that definitely speaks to, to, I think, the world has finally worked out that video games is a thing. Like, despite the fact that it's been bigger than the movies and music industry for literally 10 years straight, I, I personally always felt that video game companies were undervalued. And that's why even when earlier in the year, like the Activision Blizzard one, like eyebrows were raised at that number, I sort of thought, but is it? I mean, if you look at what, you know, how strong their pedigree is and the increasing value of the games industry, but I, maybe more question for Matt. I mean, you, you work more in these spaces as well. Like, what do you think about like that happening? Because that's like never has really been seen before in the industry. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I've certainly never gone through that. Um, I'll say as like, as an employee of EA, it's, it's a very large company already. And so to think about what it means to be absorbed into an even larger company um, is kind of daunting. Um, you know, one of my one of the challenges that I um, have to overcome on a sort of regular basis and that I talk to other employees about frequently is like needing to reach out to other studios and share learnings um, across 
like the mobile organization or just the broader organization. There's, you know, lots of PMs across the company, uh, many of whom I have never met. And so how do, how can we um, share learnings and not have to reinvent the wheel every time we're doing a new system, uh, something like that. So I can imagine that challenge would only increase uh, going to a, you know, pick a tech company, Microsoft, Netflix, Apple, what have you. Um, so, I mean, that's that's kind of like the first thing that comes to mind as someone who's on the on the ground day in and day out. Um, I think uh, to Maria's point, it's it's a maybe a little bit concerning as a player. Um, I think that that you're spot on that there will be fewer bets made on, you know, interesting, new, riskier projects. Um, that's that's the sense that I get as well. Um you know, given we have these sort of um, decaying macroeconomic conditions, things are going to get a little bit tougher out there. We probably are going to see more acquisitions and more consolidation of, of struggling studios that that need uh, some support. But also these big platform holders need content to fill the pipelines, right? Like Xbox Game Pass needs new games and Sony needs new games for their network. And so there's, there's going to be a, a need for these kind of games, but whether the, those type of companies will continue to remain independent or they're going to be increasingly um, you know, aggregated under Embracer or EA or what have you, like uh, I guess that remains to be seen. But those are kind of my initial reactions. To me, it also speaks to the evolution of tech and entertainment companies and how big and profitable they are mm. um like to the point it's it's true <laughs> i know but just thinking about you know the fang acronym the small number of companies that exist out there that can pay this huge sums to to buy these mature companies for like you're saying Matt, for guaranteed content pipelines for their for their products or you know if disney acquired ea to have more ips um and be able to also build games with their ips so yeah, to me, it speaks to the power that some companies right now have, you know, Apple, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, yeah. we all know who they are. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't have an opinion on it, really. I, there, are, there are some concerns about monopolization that I have. Um, the there to to buy a company as big as EA, there has to be a company bigger than them. Is where I'm coming from, mm -hmm. and sure. to me, I find that a little bit scary as like a small human in this world. Yeah, this sort of thing has been seen in other industries, like in the movie industry. There's very few sort of uh, studios now, whereas there used to be way more. You know, back in the say, 50s and 60s, and the same thing happened, just consolidated, and a few mergers being like the winners and. They monopolized all of the supply line and you know made this sort of situation it is now perhaps maybe like moving on a little bit how about like you know the rise of web 3 because web 3 potentially could be a game changer in the fact that you've got different types of organizational setups specifically DAOs, and you know you could end up having a game which is run by its own DAO, which would mean that a company doesn't really need to look after it but the people who were looking after it would sort of be truly passionate about what they're doing and care for it um, is that the sort of thing that could could stop mergers from happening in, I don't think in the short term, but in the mid to long term? That's just an open question. I think it's an interesting new format that the industry will need to grapple with, but I don't think it's going to stop consolidation. I think 
I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying, but I think any acquirer could come in and just scoop up a bunch of tokens instead of scooping up a bunch of shares. Um, and, and I think on the topic of Web3 generally, that is going to be an area where we do see acquisitions. You know, these big companies outside of maybe Ubisoft and Square Enix, like they don't have the capability to do Web3 right now. And it really doesn't make sense for them to do that. Like it's sort of a classic kind of innovator's dilemma, right? Where it's it's like it's not in their best interest to be um, trying these new things that are risky and will pull away from their main kind of cash cows. And so it's better to just like acquire someone um uh, like a first light games that is already doing this already um, and, you know, showing potential. Um, so uh, that, I think that's going to happen. Like it's, it's too risky for Activision, EA, name a big you know publisher to start that stuff from scratch. It's easier to just acquire those capabilities. Hmm. I'm not, I'm, I'm honestly a bit skeptic about DAOs. Until I see it yeah. work fully independently and being able to manage a business like a game in a way that is profitable. Because my initial assumption is that the DAO would manage the game to make it fun. Mm -hmm. If it's a game, then there's a whole play, play to earn, play and earn that maybe would give a financial motivation to also try to maximize the, the, the revenue potential for the game. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know until I see it in action. I'm skepti skeptical about it. Anil, what, what do you think? Uh, I, even though I brought up the topic, I think I would largely agree with both of you. Um, I think it will cause some sort of minor differences as people understand the sort of new world, but uh, cash is king at the end of the day as, as Matt said even in the DAO someone could just buy all of the tokens and then essentially run the DAO how they wanted to anyway there may be some protection measures put in place to get around that but realistically the games industry works like a certain way and that's probably how it will, it will be you know going forwards um, I do think though that in terms you know the question I asked is when does merge mania end and I think Web3 doesn't end it actually if anything it's going to make it more likely and if anything the types of companies that will be acquired might be not just traditional gaming studios, but people who sort of sit between different verticals. So Yuga Labs would be a good example of someone who, you know, they're making games, but, you know, they're a kind of a cultural type, type studio too, artistic, branded, more like that. Um, but I think, you know, maybe not them, but someone like them inevitably also gets acquired probably by the traditional people that have the channels and, and media. I think maybe another question though is that, you know, how long can it go on for before these companies get so big that kind of anti-competition laws kick in and they're forced to kind of sell off entities? Amazon especially is one of those companies that to this day, I don't really understand how they're allowed to exist in their current form because they have so many different, like AWS just by itself should 100% be its own company. Like, I'm not really sure how someone can own that plus the logistics pipeline. Maybe someone from a legal angle can, but I think it's just a matter of time before something like that happens. Even the same to Microsoft, like it's so huge. Um, at what point does there have to be a Microsoft games division is a separate company and it's just called Xbox. And then, you know, Microsoft sits on top of that. Um, and, and that might have more of a, an effect on when mergers stop. Oh, this question might get a little bit political. <laughs> I don't think there's enough 
political motivation to break up such big companies due to how governments work, elections work. And so I, I, I have doubts that that will ever happen. The way that I see it is that as professionals and especially working in a creative industry, I believe the expansion will come from potentially people wanting to explore more of these creative risky ideas and get frustrated within these big companies of you know top-down decisions and processes and not having the freedom to just do something that's risky without jumping through a bunch of hoops and getting authorization to do it probably getting um, rejected and having to work on something that is more of a known formula and so yeah you might you might see companies that decide to start branching out and be more independent again. I think there will always be that independent segment of the industry, uh, just sort of people who are passionate about a certain idea or project and want to go build it. For sure, that's not going anywhere. Um, uh, oh, lost my train of thought. I was going to comment on your... Oh, yeah. Um, so you were talking about antitrust. Um, I remember when the... Uh, Microsoft Activision, you know, uh, uh, acquisition was just being announced. And I, I saw some charts about like percentage of market share across PC, mobile and console gaming. And n none of the combined entities were like more than 50%. So like these are massive companies for sure. And they span a lot of different industries beyond gaming. But when it comes to gaming specifically, I don't think any one company is really monopolistic as far as platform dominance. You might argue like Apple or Google. Um, mm -hmm. That's maybe a different conversation. Um, but if you were to also further break it down by like genre, I think you would see the same thing. There's no like major monopolistic players. Like probably the closest thing would be, um, I don't know, Candy Crush in Match 3 or Call of Duty and shooters. But even those have competitors that make, uh, you know, decent businesses yeah so yeah i don't think there's there's a, a numbers case to be made for monopoly at least at this point mm, yeah there is a clear difference between what feels like a monopoly as a consumer versus the actual definition of a monopoly to then right um have legal consequences on it yeah Maybe the I games are still 60 70 dollars the microtransactions are still you know 99 cents to whatever high-end price like no one is extracting you know undue sums beyond what's industry norms well i'm curious to see how far it will go is the development of the platforms for example publishing platforms like epic and then that intersection with the metaverse and also the intersection of web3 in terms of the chains so looking at immutable it feels like Immutable is becoming this chain publishing platform that if you have a deal with them, they'll uh, help you set up your account flows and best practices of the user funnels. Potentially, we'll see perhaps on-chain uh, game services, who, who knows, that people can tap into. Uh, and there's a lot of competitors out there, so we might see a dominant uh, company come out of the end of it, and perhaps it could be acquired by one of these other companies. I don't know. I'm curious to see that aspect of how far it can go and who will become known as the publishing platform in Web3 that has services like Epic Online Services or PlayFab out there. Interesting. Oh, 
Matt just did his lean in the chair. You know, <laughs> no, I don't stop. have any sly comments right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, are you happy to carry on? John and Neil, do you have any other burning no, questions? Let's, let's move on to the next one. Okay. So. <laughs> good, good. <laughs> I should have prepared better. God. <laughs> I didn't know we were going to get a questioning from the host. <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. And if you subscribe to the uh, Navec Digest newsletter, it's free. You could get a roundup of all of these insights. Matt actually recently wrote a piece about the state of public and private markets that covers a lot of this. If you want to go and check it out. And yeah, that's then my topic for uh-huh. today, which is about matchmaking. So it was inspired by a Washington Post uh, article called Video Game Developers Want Fair Online Games. Some players don't. And the summary, uh, this was written by Ethan Davidson. The summary is that some popular Warzone players on Twitch and YouTube, um, they seek out lobbies that are filled with less skillful players. I think they call it bot lobbies or something like that. Um, Because skill-based matchmaking, which is the widely used formula right now in uh, PvP games. They try to match players. I- I'm probably over explaining this. You know what it is. Um, <laughs> and then a number of players, they just find it, it's that constant skill matching. Every time you play a match, you just feel tired because you're fighting. You're trying to get to the top. There's no easy, crushing, enjoyable moment of victory where you feel super powerful. You you win by a lot of effort and being good at what you're playing. But sometimes players just want to chill. Yeah, feel like they're crushing the world. Of course, sometimes you will be crushed. Uh, you'll just be completely taken over in a match and the match hopefully will end soon so that you can move on to the other one. Um, and these players, by a- they, the players were asking to have these lobbies where they could all always face um, less skillful players. One thing that I kept thinking about is like, someone has to be at the bottom. So if you're always placed in these less skillful lobbies, the same people potentially are just going to get crushed over and over and over again. Uh, and I played a lot of Destiny 2 and Battlefield 5, so I, I somewhat know the feeling in some of the game modes of just being constantly crushed. And then that's why I churned, because I never got the opportunity to, to be equally good. Um, yeah, so, you know, I know Anil, Matt, you both are experts in matchmaking, right? (laughs) I'm not an expert, but I think you hit on the key point in my mind there at the end, which is you churn because it wasn't a fun experience. Like, you know, there's matchmaking based on skill uh, around like establishing the best competition, best level of, you know, fairness. But really, I think a lot of these games should be matchmaking to optimize towards retention and keeping people in the game and engaged with the game. Um, unless you're like a League of Legends where you're doing like high level competitive gaming and you want it to be fair, you know, 50% win and lose rate. Um, I think you should be optimizing your matchmaking towards engagement to keep people in the game and having fun. So you get, um, you know, a, a, a less of a choppy experience as a player, you know, you don't want to be getting crushed every time. Um, but you also don't want to be winning every time. Uh, you don't want it to be too easy. That's sort of like the classic um, game design challenge of vacillating between like too challenging and boredom. Um, so anyways, I, th- I think that's the important bit is like optimizing towards engagement. 
and keeping people retained in the game rather than optimizing towards perfect fair play. And do you think that happens currently with the games that are out there that are heavily PvP? Well, that's that's kind of the vibe I'm getting from this article and from your summary is that these sort of like esports pros are upset that they're having to play against other really talented players. Um, you know, personally, I don't have a lot of sympathy for that argument. Um, mm -hmm. Like, if you're gonna be like a super high skilled player, you should expect to play against super high skilled players. But I understand why you don't like. I'll give you a real world example. Like, I like to play basketball. Um, I don't. Like I like to play basketball because I can play with my friends and have fun and we're all like around the same skill level. I don't like to go out and like play against a bunch of D1 college athletes because I'm going to get destroyed. Um, so, you know, I can understand the point of view, but um, yeah, I, I, I just think that the goals are, are different. What do you think, Anil? Yeah, I've actually worked on quite a few matchmaking algorithms in my past and on games like this. I've got quite a lot to say about this. I think you are right to say that um, it, they kind of, on the surface, don't appear to be doing that great a, a job at optimizing for retention. But actually, I think they kind of are because certainly in my experience, what we kind of found quite quickly is that the most vocal players are the ones that complain the most, but those people tend to be the ones that are the most skillful and they will play your game regardless. So therefore, if you're in charge of the product, yes, you want to optimize for retention, but who are you optimizing for retention for? You probably want to optimize your retention for 80% of the player base rather than 20% of your player base. And for your 80% of the player base, losing feels bad. And the most tolerable limit they will get to in a PvP game is 50%. At least that's what our findings were, and I'm pretty sure I've heard that across the industry. If you make a PvP game, like you were to make, let's say, a, a card battle, a single-player RPG, then you can get away with 60-40. Uh, so that actually means making the player win even more than 50% of the time. But you don't want them winning so much that it's too easy, because then they also churn, which is another thing to put out on there as well, that if it was like you were winning all the time, there would be no interest in playing the game. So... I actually think that's kind of like how ELO has ended up where it is and, and matchmaking because that has, I'm not saying it's the best way, but currently no one has come up with a way that is, uh, feels better than that without having the kind of negative consequences. And I do remember a few times actually we had something that was kind of like a modified ELO ranking that tried to take certain things into consideration, like what your current win streak was on. Had you lost, uh, had you have a loss streak for a while to make kind of temporal adjustments and did they really have a big impact? Not really. I have seen it happen in some other games. Like I don't know if you played sort of Clash Royale, you quite often get this feeling of if you lose a lot of games in a row, it will hand you what's blatantly a bot so mm -hmm. that you can smash it and then you'll, you'll feel good again. But you kind of know it's a bot. And it's like if you were to really make it like a truly bespoke experience, you would do something similar to that. And right now the AI with bots isn't good enough. You can, you can always kind of tell, right, when you're really good at these games. So um. It is interesting. I totally agree with you, Marie. I have to say, so I used to run fighting game tournaments. And I used to play in said tournaments myself too. And one thing I found is that in the casuals before the tournament, I used to have a great time because there was no pressure on. You were having a challenging game, but it didn't really matter if you won or you lost. And then as soon as I get into the tournament proper itself, it's like, oh, this feels horrible. Like every move, every miscalculation you make, and it actually wasn't that fun, no matter sort of how well you did. And I had sort of strangely found myself much more preferring the casuals both before and after. 
if that makes sense. And the sort of main event was fun to watch, but not necessarily to play through. Um, a bit like your kind of basketball comparison. Like I play football every week and it's quite competitive, but we're not really playing to win. And I really like that. So it's not like a league. It doesn't really matter who wins or loses, but yeah. everyone, of course, wants to win. But that's like a more kind of fun feeling. And so I can totally understand it's like the equivalence of Netflix and chill. It's you just want to like Call of Duty and chill or Battle Royale and chill <laughs> and just have a good time. And you might have like with, the, with no stress on you, you might play better and you do things that are more fun. Or if you watch people stream often, they do that. It's more fun to watch it when they're not being so kind of competitive. Um, so totally feel that way. But, you know, these games, they're popular because it goes for that kind of killer player persona profile, right? You want to win, you want to dominate, you want to be the best. Well, if you want to have a game that facilitates that, what comes of that is you're going to lose quite a lot of the time. And you're going to get beaten and, and so on and so forth. And how do you balance it? And then, then you have games like um, Hearthstone was a really good example of this, where they put like quite a big element of luck into the game. So it meant that like even if you were the best player in the world, you could never really get above a kind of 70% win ratio, which is interesting. Because, you know, I've worked on fighting games where the best player in the world can have like a 98% win ratio. There's not that much luck involved at like the very top level. And, you know, that has pros and cons. Pros because it means that like, oh, the best player always wins. But cons because it's boring because the Roger Federer stroke, Rafa Nadal stroke, Novak Djokovic of insert video game here always dominates. Whereas it's more fun to watch like that, you know, the, the underdog have its day kind of thing. So... It is pretty interesting. I mean, I'd be curious and maybe throw it back on you that, you know, how would you even go about fixing it? I mean, my personal uh, opinion is that like um, there has been no good way to do it and hence why ELO is just the de facto default solution we keep to because it works. Not that it can't be improved, but it's decent. I don't, I don't. I think what Matt was saying, not always being perfectly skill-based, having some variation, uh, I believe that it applies AI to find these perfectly matched skilled players. So perhaps there could be an AI that understands what kind of cadence of wins, uh, tight wins. Uh, yeah, I should distinguish tight wins from crushing wins, <laughs> from tight losses and crushing losses, understanding what's the best pattern, essentially segmenting and uh, yeah, adding in artificially that variation into the player's experience so that sometimes it's, it's easy, I suppose. Um, the, in terms of the ELO rating, something that I've been thinking about is how, how does ELO maintain variability with who you face if your game has a low DAU? Well, the way the system works is that if you get matched with someone who's much more skillful than you, if you win, you'll got the ranks faster. And conversely, if you're really highly skilled, you have a lot to lose by playing the lower ranked player. So that tends to mean that you, if you're forced into that, you, you may not want to accept the match if that's allowed in the algorithm. Or more likely, it just means that, you know, it's, it's trying to just like average everything out so everyone's around the, the, the same ranking. And essentially, it means that on average, you will always be after a couple of hundred matches, you'll be always having like a 50% win-loss ratio because as you improve, you're then quickly put to someone who's more skillful than you. And as you get worse, you get matched with people who are also equally bad. <laughs> so that's what it really does. And it's just basically, uh, if you hard crunch the numbers, you do like Monte Carlo simulations. That, that's all it really tends to. It just shows you that it doesn't matter what number you start at, you will always end up in the middle and that's sort of what's preferred. And you maybe get less than 1% of players. The same as in chess, right? Chess is FIDE ranking, it's just ELO, right? So there are some people that have bonkers scores, like Magnus Carlsen, I think, set the record for something like 
2,600. And then you've got like a, so if he would lose to anyone, he would lose like, you know, 200 ELO. Whereas if anyone could take a game off them, they'd like be an international grandmaster immediately sort of thing. That's sort of how ridiculous a level he got to, which is kind of unfair on him. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Magnus Carlsen is one of these guys going, guys, can't you just let me play some fun chess against people so I can just beat some scrubs and feel good about myself rather than punishing me. Um, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, there's no like easy answer to this. Um, there are a lot of really, really smart people working on matchmaking algorithms and you know crunching the numbers from a data science perspective and machine learning. Like, there's a lot of smart people working on these problems, and I don't think there's a great answer yet. I mean, there's definitely some some good attempts, as Anil has pointed out. You know, there are things you can do like um, well, bots is one thing. Uh, you know, for better or worse, like it's, it's especially around the DAU problem, you kind of have to have bots. Um, uh, and you can probably spend a lot of time and energy um, adjusting the AI to different skill levels to better match against differently ranked players. You can have also ranked play versus casual play where you have different algorithms there, uh, maybe different matchmaking algorithms at different ranks. Um, maybe it resets season over season. There's all sorts of different ways you could approach this, but th no doubt it's a challenging problem. Uh, last last question that's been on my mind, Anil. If you're working with a fairly small game team, you know, a small studio, maybe you're bootstrapping, you don't have a lot of funding, and you have know, a team of ten to twenty people, how how far would you go to try to optimize the matchmaking? It's a great question. I I think the what I've noticed is that you're better off trying to get people into a match rather than trying to get them into a fair match, if that makes sense because it's still better to play against human competition than just bots. So you want to optimize for that. And that tends to be the bigger challenge for a startup as opposed to the other way around. Because if you're a startup, when you release your game, are you going to get it that your matchmaking time is less than a minute because you've got enough of a player base to do it? Unlikely. You know, that's where like, you know, if you're Blizzard or you're Supercell, you're at a massive advantage because you can announce your brand new game you know, called Super Test Prototype Fighter, whatever you want to call it. It's like really clear that it's a beta and immediately 2 million people download it, even though it's only available on the Canadian iTunes store. And they've already got that concurrency and they can check it. Um, whereas if you're a startup and you wanted to make the, set, the same game, even if your gameplay was really amazing, they can't guarantee it. Um, that's not to say it's not important. You definitely want to kind of add that. But it's like the secondary consideration to wanting to make sure that people get into a game first. As Matt says, bots are a necessary evil because you've got to, that's going to help you facilitate getting players into the game. Um, but then you definitely get these sort of, uh, I've seen this on a number of games I've worked with where you can basically compare the retention of people who are matched with real players against people who are matched with bots. And like the retention with real players is like, oh, 70% day one. And the retention with bots is like 20% day one. And it's like, oh, great, we just need to put more people into the game, but that costs you more money. And then, you, you know, you haven't got this way of monetizing of the people you're putting in. So you need some fairly deep pockets to, to kind of say that. And that's why I think you definitely notice in the industry how some people are amazing at making PvP games and some people have tried it, but know they're never going to go back into that because it's just not really possible. Uh, you know, look at how Valorant has become like a really great game for Riot, but it definitely helped that they could put so many people into it and use mm -hmm. that to like really kind of tune it. If you were trying to go against them, I'm not saying it's not possible. It's just a much bigger mountain to climb. Sounds like Web3 potentially is a good space to release PvP because you can create that awareness 
prior to releasing the game, even if you're a small studio. That is the conclusion we have come to at my company. That <laughs> okay, is correct. Good. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, to be totally honest with you and candid, that's exactly it. Like if it was a, um, or could we do the same game we wanted to do without it being Web3? I think it'd be a lot more challenging. Because, uh, you know, one thing that I like about the sort of Web3 development philosophy is, is like the pyramid's been turned on its head. What will tend to happen is that you'll be working on a top secret game for two years. No one's ever heard about it until the announcement trailer comes out. And then you see if people like it or not. Whereas games in Web3 right now, some people literally show one screenshot, start their community, start selling people on hopes and dreams and people come towards it. And if people like the idea of what you're making, more and more people will arrive. And mm -hmm. if you've got like good uh, product market fit, eventually that game will become a real thing and then people will like it. The danger there is, of course, then you're buying into hopes and dreams and not a real product. And what if the real product doesn't match the hopes and dreams and then projects fail that way? Uh, but it's interesting. It's, it, it, for me, having been through both cycles, I far prefer this way of doing it because it feels more kind of like indie or sort of like, you know, a bunch of developers in a bedroom or sort of a university working together on their dream project, which is fun. And you get that kind of um, payback or the feedback loop much faster. Like if your game is good, then people are going to say it's good. And if it's not, it's not. And then you can kind of move on. Whereas, you know, that's sometimes like, a, it'd be interesting actually to ask, to ask you, Matt, like, you know, when I was working for like a sort of juggernauts in the past and working on games that would take years, you know, you often got to this sort of point a year in development where you're like, oh, you know, it's still going to be another year before people even see this game. And, you know, what if this game sucks? No comment. You know, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. So, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe you've endured such such things in the past. And, um, yeah, it can be brutal. Whereas I would have loved it if, like, you know, people could put it out there and, and you could try it. And, you know, I've seen both things. Like, I, I do have to say, I remember one, I won't say what game it was, but um, it was shown, you know, fairly advanced. They were going to sort of announce it sort of two months after it was shown to us. I'm like, oh, what do you think about it? And... I was trying really hard not to tell them that the game absolutely sucked. And then sure enough, when it came out, like it just bombed. And oh, no. Yeah. And like, you know, you could have saved just sort of two years of life. And like I say, if you're unfortunate to be put onto that kind of project. So um, yeah, that's a, that's a very real thing. That's maybe the sort of life behind the scenes as a games dev is that those things happen. I, I happen to know someone who worked for the first 10 years of their career on not a single game that got released. Every single one got cancelled behind closed doors. So they were like a really talented person. And this person, I won't say their name, but they ended up becoming like the game lead of a super successful game that's like one of the best sort of performing games in the world right now. And yet for the first 10 years of their life, they didn't have a single ship product to speak of. Uh, fair play to this person. They stuck with it and, you know, got there in the end. But you've got to have tough skin to do that. Uh, Anil, I'm curious to ask, and I don't know how much you can, you can say on the record here, but like this matchmaking thing as it relates to Web3, like... Is there anything um, that the blockchain sort of uniquely enables there? I was sort of thinking through this, um, like maybe, uh, you know, sort of your your ELO scores or, or equivalent could be sort of immutably stored on the chain. Could you like have the um, matchmaking algorithm be like a smart contract where people could fork it and like, you know, improve it over time, kind of open source? Like, have you have you guys thought about this stuff at all? Like what's what's happening uh, in, in this space from a Web3 perspective? I've got to say, those are way better ideas than anything we've had. I might have to steal <laughs> some of them for ourselves. Um, Please, we are, we, I have to say, there's someone on our team who's literally looking at that aspect right now. But I think for, for, for where we are, we still, I don't think the blockchain really adds anything at the moment because you're still looking to get like 
fun and fair matchmaking is yeah. the most important. That's very interesting though to show it like you know immutably on the blockchain. I think that could definitely help with um, finding people who are cheating or you know because there is this kind of concept of um, people do it in Clash as well where people deliberately lose so they can make a bigger run because they know that the ELO is going to modify it so you can do it and you could maybe analytically resolve that. But how big an issue that really is. Um, but you know, I think what you've kind of touched on there is the same of everything with Web3, which is that it gives us potentially new solutions to many problems they've had in the past and it's up to people to figure it out. Perhaps you don't need Web3 to solve some of these problems. I mean, that's sort of the point we're saying here, like, might well and people optimize for it. Um, that, that's really good thoughts, though. I, I, it could be some cool stuff to be done there. I'm curious that sometimes players say, oh, you know, if you just did it like this, it'd be way better. Um, so if it's on the blockchain, you have your... Yeah, all of that information public and someone can take it and then just say, hey, come and play in this game that I made. That's meant to be way better. I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it sounds, well, it I, sounds I, I, I was going to say that I don't know about you, but it's been proven over and over again that just because you're good at a game doesn't mean you're good at designing games. And <laughs> I, I will say that as someone who also thought that myself too, there's like a different skill set involved. And you often many companies have done it i've certainly seen it at companies where you'll bring top players in you'll listen to their ideas and then you'll like implement your ideas and they're not very good or you'll hire someone from that background to do it and again it's like they know how to min max a specific system of rules but the, the ability to come up with the rules in the first place and give you that feeling that's like a different aspect um and th that is challenging I, I genuinely think it's like like sort of left brain right brain thinking that they're two sort of diametrically opposed so to be fair, we had that often, um, like working on fighting games, that people who would design it were, they were okay at the game, but they, they would get completely destroyed by someone who is like the top tournament player. But then the top tournament player, if they gave us their ideas, you're like, well, that will never work. It just won't be very much fun. Um, so yeah, I, that's kind of like to your point there, Maria, is like, you know, they, they could make their own sort of things. They look how much better it is, but I'd put a lot of money to say it wouldn't be better. Maybe, but just having that opportunity to, if, if you want to dedicate time to doing it, that you can take that information and, and go and spin off something of your own. It just feels exciting. Um, all right, well, I think we'll wrap up the episode because we're near the one hour, one hour mark unless, and Neil, Matt, anything additional you want to add? I don't think so. It was a good, good chill podcast. Yeah. yeah. As always a pleasure. I hope my Navic Elo doesn't suffer too much in the making of this podcast. <laughs> Do we have an Elo? <laughs> oh no. This is this is why Anil and I keep getting matched in the podcast. <laughs> very evenly matched in, in pod Elo. Is this skill-based matchmaking or retention-based matchmaking? <laughs> oh, I'll let the listeners decide. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining today. And also thank you to the listeners for uh, listening in today. If you want to join the discussion, you can find us in the Navic Discord, uh, or we will see you next week. Thanks, everyone.